the only talk radio afternoon drive show that makes sense beyond the headline with Aldrin Simpia right here on SAFM well, this week, the African Free Continental Trade Area will be enforced in 31 countries from around the continent will be t- participating in the regional trade under the structure. We wanted uh, to discuss what the introduction of uh, the African Continental Trade Free Trade Area means for SAA and how this development will shift the customs duties as well as uh, tariff policies. Our next guest will paint a picture of uh, the International Trade Administration Commission's role in facilitating these developments and what challenges may be faced with the new in flux of trade among African companies and perhaps explain what rebates are being instituted on certain product categories. We are now joined by Ayabong Akawa, who is the Chief uh, Commissioner at the International Trade Administration Commission. Ayabong, good afternoon and thank you so much for making time for us. Good afternoon, Aldrin, and thank you very much for having us. Sure. Before we go into the implementation of um, AFGAN now and Wednesday and also the rebates that have been announced by SARS, do you find it odd that it seems as though a lot of Africans don't really know what we're talking about when we speak about the African continental free trade area? Well, I, I mean, I do find it concerning, uh, Aldrin, um, but not necessarily surprising. Uh, if one considers the um, relative lack of, um, I guess, economic literacy in the society, let alone uh, the understanding of how sophisticated patterns of trade between our countries unfold um, and the complexity that one might find in a tariff book. Um, I certainly having spent some time at school uh, still find it uh, quite complicated um, and uh, to some degree alienating at times as well. So I can only imagine uh, for somebody who sort of hasn't spent five or six years at school studying some of this, um, how difficult it would be to understand, and yet it's something that affects all of us. So uh, I certainly do find it concerning, Aldrin, but um, certainly not surprising. Certainly not surprising. Let's speak about what is set to unfold now on Wednesday, also considering um, that there have been pilot phases of the African continental free trade area that have already been embarked Mm. on. Indeed. And thank you once again for the opportunity. Uh, I think it's a momentous occasion, Aldrin. Um, a considerable amount of work has happened behind the scenes uh, to get to this point where on Wednesday uh, at Pier 1 in the port of Durban, uh, there will be an official ceremony to herald the beginning of trade uh, with the dispatching of goods that are made in South Africa that are going to, to the continent. Um, and it's certainly something that, uh, if one thinks about it, has been on the agenda of African people, um, certainly since post-independence around 1961, 62, 63 or so, uh, where this notion of trying to at least create integrated trading networks on the continent uh, has been on the agenda. Um, I think we have an anomalous situation on the continent, Aldrin. Uh, We have just shy of a fifth of the global population, but we only account for 3% of global trade flows, only 3% of global output, only 2% of manufactured output, Um, and about one percentage point of global steel production. Um, So the big issue is that we don't trade enough among ourselves as African people. Uh, And I think this AFCFTA is the start of a process to bring us closer to improving the trade flows among ourselves by beginning to eliminate some of the tariff barriers and some of the non-tariff barriers to do so. Um, So so really that's what it's about to uh, across uh, certain tariff lines, begin to reduce tariffs Uh, that serve as a barrier of trade between African countries. I mean, let me give you an example. In the case of tomato sauce, 
um, tomato sauce uh, attracts a general tariff of five percent. Um, and uh, under the AFCFTA, uh, countries that are producing tomato sauce, exporting it into South Africa, would only pay a, a, a customs duty of around three percent. Um, in the case of padlocks, uh, where prior to Wednesday th these would be, if they are coming from African countries, coming in at sixteen percent, they are now going to be coming in at twelve percent, and the general tariff there is at around twenty percent for other countries in the world that don't come from the continent or any other places where we have free trade agreements or, or some form of, uh, I guess, economic partnerships such as the Eurozone. So, so it is indeed something material insofar as a reduction of some of the tariffs uh, and some of the taxes, if I should say, uh, that would be levied by different parties uh, to trade. And in this case, the parties would be two African countries trying to trade with one another. Speaking about some of the limitations or that are faced when it comes to intra-government trade or intercontinental trade on the continent, um, we are told that um, that this particular pilot will also phase in the Pan-African payments and settlement systems. But the point yes. that has been raised before is that unfortunately these countries, African countries, are trading in currencies um, that some of them don't actually have a large reserves of. What does this mean for um, fast-tracking payments and also the processing of these goods? Well, I think it's a great deal of concern, um, but also alongside that challenge is there an opportunity as well. So on the part of the challenge, you are correct when you say that much of this trade is occurring in currencies that are not necessarily the currencies of issue of some of these countries. So if you are trading with a uh, exporter in Zimbabwe, in all likelihood, you are paying that exporter in US dollar. Um, similarly, if you are buying fuel from Angola, uh, bringing it to South Africa, you are paying for that in a currency that neither Pretoria nor Luanda issues. Uh, so it's a big issue. Uh, but I also see the opportunity in that. Um, and this is why some of the protocols have been around issues of payments and digital trade, uh, because it does present an opportunity for the fintech ecosystem on the continent to begin to create tokens of exchange or to begin to create means of exchange uh, that would underpin some of this trade between African countries. And I think uh, that these are the kinds of challenges and constraints uh, that uh, certainly need continental attention. I mean, add to that issues of infrastructure. I mean, it doesn't help that I can access these preferential terms of trade, uh, absent of roads, absent of rail, absent of all of the kind of ground level infrastructure needed to undertake this trade. Um, and so in a sense, I think we have to return back to this idea that uh, measures like this must assist us to undertake much wider planning at a continental level, such that we plan the infrastructure that enables regional value chains along different countries, rather than perhaps South Africa planning its own infrastructure, Namibia doing its own thing, Angola doing their own thing. Um, and I think it goes back to a historical challenge. Uh, that uh, the first president of um, you know, post-independence, Ghana and Kwame Nkrumah, raised, which is that um, the kind of characteristic of neocolonialism on our continent is such that uh, it creates uh, you know, this fixation with uh, very small, uh, unviable states, which are in, uh, incapable of any independent economic development. And, I, and so we really do need to start to think of economic planning on a continental scale. Yeah. Because some of these investments we're talking about, um, you know, are not investments that you do in a small market in a pocket somewhere, but require much greater planning. And that's why it's quite concerning that uh, you see 
some of the tensions in ECOWAS, for instance, and other regional bodies yep. across the continent. Just quickly speaking about tension and also logistics, um, have South Africa as yet experienced the impact of um, the instability um, that is playing out in the Red Sea? Well, um, I think it would be difficult to say, aside from maybe a few anecdotal examples. You would know, of course, that that trade um, on the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden uh, there, it carries about 12% of global trade. It's primarily a route that connects Europe and Asia. And so in many of the value chains where intermediate inputs uh, are produced um, by production networks that span the two continents, Europe and Asia, and maybe end up in South Africa's finished goods, uh, that we are likely to see that impact. Now, of course, you might not see it immediately. Um, in economics, you often have these things being subjected to lags, but we are already starting to see in the case, for instance, of electronics, where some of the kind of products and technology uh, would cross that part of the world. Um, we're beginning to see some of these log jams, um, uh, reports coming out of Europe and Asia of uh, firms being on short time because they can't get raw materials or inputs as a result of some of those challenges that are seen there. Um, so, so I think in the next few months, we'll certainly see the impact of that. Mm. Uh, I've certainly expressed my own view that uh, I, I anticipate that that was going to lift uh, prices. Um, and for as long as those supply chain challenges continue, they are going to have a knock-on impact uh, on the prices of capital and wage goods uh, that would have been traded uh, along that route. Thank you so much for your time. Ayabonga Gawe, Chief Commissioner at the International Trade Administration Commission. And for the people who always argue that um, Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian-Gaza-Hamas war has absolutely nothing to do with us, what's happening on the Red Sea is a result of that. It's a result of what's happening between um, Israel and what's happening between Israel and Palestinians or Hamas, as Israel, Israel would put it. But can you see the impact that it's going to have on you and I?